Zero is accounting software that has all the features small business owners need to run a business successfully. To help ensure business success, Zero also partners directly with accounting and bookkeeping firms, giving them a suite of tools and training to become Zero experts to help them and confidently advise businesses. Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor Zero later in the episode. If you'd like to earn CPE credit for listening to this episode, visit earmarkcpe.com. Download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. Continuing education has never been so easy. And now, on to the episode. This is Oh My Fraud, a true crime podcast where the bad guys make up numbers instead of alibis. I'm Caleb Newquist. And I'm Greg Kite. Hey, Greg. Um... Do you remember your first computer? I I absolutely do. It was weird. I was just talking about this like a few weeks ago. Uh, for some reason, my first computer was called a Vic Twenty. I think, and if I'm remembering a right, Vic. it was <laughs> wow. like I don't. I've never heard of this. You've never heard of it? It's okay, no, it's, I don't. No, we'll get to my first computer in a minute. Okay. Well, my this. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it was like the computer was built. It was it was the early. I'm gonna say early '80s. The computer, I think, was just built into this massive keyboard, and you plugged that massive keyboard into a television, mm-hmm. and uh, and and it had. Here's what. Here's the stat. I looked these stats up. My VIC twenty had twenty KB kilobytes of ROM and only five kilobytes of RAM. Yeah, and I just I just checked, and the computer that my uh, when I was at work, I checked, and my work computer has sixteen gigabytes of RAM. So right. that's uh, that's 16 million kilobytes. So I started with five kilobytes. Now I have 16 million of those. Um, right. My my work computer has a 912 uh, gigabytes of storage. Uh, Good lord. And that's that. And 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 I only had 20 kilobytes of ROM. And ROM isn't the same as storage. But I'll tell you, I got. I got so much more storage than I used to have ROM, even though I don't know what those things are, what the difference is between them. But damn, I have so much more gigabytes of something than I had of a different thing when I was a child. You you have an abundance of whatever it is that you have. Yeah. Oh, here, here's another thing about my VIC-20 is yep. uh, forget about the cloud. Uh, on my VIC-20, we saved whatever... Our work was that we were doing on mm-hmm. our Vic 20. We saved it on, I shit you not, a cassette tape. We had a cassette tape oh. recorder, and we and we somehow saved our work to a cassette tape. And I remember doing exactly two things on our uh, Vic 20. I remember playing a game called a muck, uh, which oh. was pretty cool and pretty hard, and I sucked at it pretty bad. And then it pro- I programmed like three lines of code in basic and that was that was it that's pretty cool yeah i remember my <laughs> my it? first i mean maybe i mean <laughs> <laughs> my first computer was a commodore 64 and um i loved it in fact i recently saw an old picture of myself uh sitting in front of it playing video games and i had a bull haircut naturally um yeah the commodore 64 had those five and a quarter inch floppies floppy disks yeah and i remember in like i mostly played video games although i think we did some worky thing eh, I didn't, let's not kid ourselves i mostly played video games 
Um, right. But, you know, the video games were on a floppy disk. And, you know, you, you'd put it in the disk drive. And I remember when it was loading, that green light on that disk drive would be on. And under no circumstances was I to touch that disk drive. And I sure as hell was not supposed to remove the disk uh, from the disk drive while that green light was on. And I never had the guts to find out what would actually happen if, uh, if, if I did, um, you know, that red, the red light and the, the nasty sound that it made when something was going wrong without me touching it right. was enough to put the fear of God into me. <laughs> so I just never found out. <laughs> right. Right. And, um, I, I just have to say like, as of this recording, I am 43 years old. Uh, and when I stopped to think about that, I think, uh, holy shit, I'm middle-aged. And also, I think <laughs> computers have really changed a lot in my lifetime. Yeah. Like specifications are not something that I like, like, oh, I know what they all are. But like, you know, my iPhone is like a ridiculously ca- powerful computer compared to that Commodore 64. Like, it, like it, it's just, it's it's not even close, right? And I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm stating maybe things that are really obvious, but it's just kind of amazing to me when I think about that Commodore 64 and how much I loved it and how much I play in those games and, and just like what they're capable of now. And I think I mostly feel frustration with computers now. And there's almost, <laughs> and there's almost no joy <laughs> anymore. All the joy is right. gone. <laughs> the, the other thing that we didn't have back then uh, was we didn't have Twitter, obviously. And if we wanted to access any hateful shit like they have on Twitter, we had to go all the way to the to the public pool or the roller rink and read the stuff on the right. s- stall door in the boys' bathroom. That was yeah. That was our Twitter. Yep, pretty much. And so in this episode, Greg, I think it's kind of fun. Uh, we're we're going back in time when people were just starting to figure this stuff out. They were just start, they were, they were just figuring out personal computers. It's kind of a weird thing to think about because these days we don't even think about this stuff. But people had to they had to figure it out. Like they had to build the things and uh, the, the the hardware, and uh, that's what today's story is about. So if you think that Stranger Things is awesome because it it uh, indulges in the nostalgia of the 80s but also has nerdy stuff like dungeons and dragons but you think to yourself i wish it was just a lot nerdier today's episode is for you all right in the early 1980s personal computers were still not a thing uh for most people they were, they were really big, physically big, and they were super expensive and they weren't easy to use. I mean, not like computers of today. Like my, two, I have a two-year-old and like she picked up, she picks up my iPhone and she instinctively knows what to do. Like it's kind of, it's frightening actually. But as most people know, I don't know if most people know this, but you tell me, Greg, you're kind of, you, you maybe have your finger on the pulse of these things. But one of the most critical pieces of any computer is the hard drive. Do most people know that? I'm I don't gonna, know if they know that. I'm going to concur. I'm going to, I mean, yeah. even a dum-dum would go, yeah, that sounds right. And I'm a dum-dum, right. so I'll go, yeah, that's, that sounds right. <laughs> right. So a hard drive is a part of your computer that stores stuff, right? Like documents, pictures, programs, whatever. If it's on a computer, it goes on the hard drive, right? These yeah. days, yeah. hard drives, they store a lot. 
in some cases like one or two terabytes. That's like, that's a shitload of storage, but yeah. how much is that exactly? Well, keep me honest here, Greg, and I know you will. There's a trillion bytes in a terabyte. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Okay. One trillion bytes. That means one terabyte of memory equals a whole lot of Vic twenties, like <laughs> millions yeah. of Vic twenties. But like when you think about stuff that commonly people have, they store on their computers, like that's like a hundred thousand songs. Like I don't, a hundred thousand songs is kind of, it's hard to get my brain around just how many songs that is. Yeah. But like a hundred movies, a yeah, yeah. hundred movies is a little bit easier, but those files are super big. Right. right. And so, if right. you, but if you could put a hundred movies on your computer, like how many times could you travel around the world with, you know, uh, with a five-year-old? I mean, uh, <laughs> right. Several. Yeah, the because the entire they'll, Disney they'll catalog. Into one of those movies and watch it a hundred thousand <laughs> right. times. Right, so, yeah, watch it the whole time. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> so, uh, hard drives have actually been around a while though, um, since the 1950s or so, and but they were physically large and super expensive, and the first ones were created by IBM. But it wasn't until the 80s when hard drives started becoming actually part of a personal computer, uh, personal home computers. Okay. Uh, for the first time. And one of the pioneers of hard disk drives was a guy by the name of Terry Johnson. Johnson was born in Ogden, Utah, which is your neck of the woods, Greg. Right up, right up the street from me. Yep. And he became an electronics technician in the Navy after high school. Then he studied electrical engineering at the University of Utah and then got later got a master's from UC Berkeley and went to work at IBM. He had a short stint at Memorex and then finally joined a startup called Disk Systems. And primarily he worked in things like storage, like he was building things to store data. And this Disk Systems, this last place where he was, that was eventually acquired by a company called Storage Tech. And in 1980, he left Storage Check and a short time later founded a company called Miniscribe to uh, start manufacturing hard disk drives. Because there was basically only, only one company at that time that was developing uh, hard disk drives. And it was, um, it was a company uh, called Shugart Technology, which is today known as Seagate. Uh, and, okay. and Miniscribe uh, was like, you know, one of the second companies to kind of be in this space. Yeah. Cause you gotta, I mean, it's, it's America and uh, you gotta have that Indeed. competition going and, uh, and, and with, I mean, it's, and even that is a little bit reminiscent of, of like the legendary startup stories that we all think about, especially in the tech world. Cause, uh, cause there's that where it's like, ah, there's this, there's this new uh, area that's, it's not so much that it's, ready for disruption because it just started it's ready for competition so people move in that's your you know uber was amazing so enter lyft that kind of idea as well right but then also johnson started miniscribe out of the basement of his uh of his home in longmont colorado and it was just him and it was one other dude who was a designer he didn't even have a degree uh and this was according to to terry johnson's oral history from the Computer History Museum. You want to talk about a hot date that's uh, going and listen to oral histories at the Computer yeah. History Museum. And, uh, and, and because we know our audience, and because we know our audience, there's a link in the show notes so you can read the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. With your date. 
Apparently, uh, Terry Johnson had tried to get when he started uh, this his business in his basement. He tried to get about ten employees, and he tried to steal them all from Storage Tech, which was his former employee. But on the Monday, they they like all planned this out, and they were like, "Hey, on Monday, everybody, we're all going to quit, and we're going to go start our new thing." And on that Monday, all but one of the ten people that were supposed to walk out with Terry Johnson. Uh, everybody else was like, yeah, I think we're good. And so he and <laughs> yeah. he and his one knucklehead buddy were like, oh, yep. just, just us. Okay. I guess it's just us. But they went yeah. and they did it and they started him and his designer. They started mini scribe and, yeah, and there's, and oh, at, go ahead. Well, at one point in the oral history, the interview, the interviewer, uh, recalls visiting Johnson's house and watching everyone working on everyone. I guess meaning Terry and his one lackey. I, it's, uh, if working. I remember this right, there was a few more guys by this point, but yeah, there, okay. only a few guys. Uh, yeah, yeah. But they, but but basically, but the 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 crux of the story was they were they were building their first hard drive on the pool table in the basement yep. of Terry yeah. Johnson House. Again, just iconic tech startup shit. Yeah, very much so. And there is another. One of the one of these early employees was a guy by the name of John Squires, and there's an oral there's an oral history of him also in the show notes because hmm. he had he had some fun stories around this stuff, and uh, so yeah if yeah if you really want to go down and get if you want to get nostalgic, uh, read those read those oral histories uh, from the Computer History Museum. This episode of Oh My Fraud is sponsored by Zero. If you love listening to this podcast, you've learned that systems and processes could have prevented many of the frauds we've discussed. Having an accounting system like Zero can help a business create the processes it needs so that it can avoid becoming a future Oh My Fraud episode. Zero lets you set up multiple users, each with their own login and password, so you can accurately assign the proper access to each user. When it comes to accounts payable, Zero pushes all bills through a built-in approval process. Zero's expense management tools ensure that employees only get reimbursed for approved expenses. And because Zero connects directly to banks, you can reconcile and match transactions daily to ensure that any money coming and leaving the bank accounts is what you expected. To become a Zero partner and gain access to free tools, benefits, and rewards for your practice, head over to ohmyfraud.promo slash zero. That's ohmyfraud.promo forward slash X-E-R-O. But anyway, so Terry Johnson and his ragtag team completed what would become known as Miniscribe 2. So I jumped ahead a little bit. They actually, they did come up with a prototype, which was Miniscribe 1, but Miniscribe 2 or Miniscribe 2012. And if you're really into this stuff, like I said, you can, you can, there's a link to the brochure. We found a brochure for the Miniscribe 2012, and that's in the show notes if you want to check that out. But anyway, it was this product, the Miniscribe 2012, with 12 megabytes of storage. What? 12. What? 12. Megabytes? Yeah. Yeah. Which was wow. like ground groundbreaking at the time. That's um, badass. Yeah. It was badass at the time. And that, that put them on the map. And IBM put it into their, I think it was their second uh, personal computer. It was the XT. Um, and yeah, it was the, the second, uh, personal computer that IBM had put out. 
And so that was a, that was obviously a big that was a big deal, right? Because that computer went on to win Jeopardy. And oh, that was the one. Oh, that was the one. That well, that was the first. They had I mean, so many, so many robots just were winning Jeopardy. They made so much money uh, just for the robot uprising. Is that was but, that that was that was IBM's main revenue stream? Was it was yeah Je- Jeopardy, <laughs> Jeopardy cash? It really it helped help put them in the black every year. Some retail companies look forward to Black Friday. IBM looked forward to uh, to Thursday nights with Alex Trebek to get into the black. Uh, but yeah, it was it was that deal. I mean, all that was bullshit, obviously. But it was the deal that Miniscribe made with IBM that paved the way for Miniscribe to do their own initial public offering uh, in late 1983. Caleb, 1983, you were uh, you were, were you, you were probably in elementary school at that point. No, Maybe? not quite. I was a little bit old for my class, so I was probably okay. it was probably eighty five when I started kindergarten. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, I was. Yeah, I was solid middle elementary school at that point. Oh man, the awkward years, huh? Uh, no, awkward years. That's, that that implies that there have been some that weren't <laughs> that they've that they've ended. <laughs> right, so just normal for me. Yeah, all of them normal. <laughs> Same. <laughs> Yeah, so Miniscribe, they get this big deal with IBM. Um, and yeah, they, the IPO came together like quick, right? So remember, this this company was just founded in 1980 or thereabouts, and they do an IPO mm-hmm. three years later. I mean, that's these by standards these days, like it's it's totally different, right? Companies would if they if they had a viable business model, like going public was a was a really good way to raise money. And so they, and they had this big deal with IBM and IBM was like one of the biggest companies in the world, you know, at the time. Right. Um, yeah. But fast forward a little bit by late 1984, IBM sales of their XT uh, personal computer, they, they weren't going great. You know, they kind of over overestimated uh, the demand. And so they scaled back their orders of mini scribes, hard drives, and this led to layoffs at Miniscribe, a plummeting stock price to the point that they even, they suspended trading. And, uh, and although he claims it was unrelated, it was around this time that Terry Johnson also resigned from Miniscribe as its CEO. I don't care where you live in the United States. If you're a CPA, you have to take ethics continuing education and i don't care who you are and where you live you hate taking ethics continuing education that's why me greg kite and my buddy adam browd we created a podcast called drunk ethics where we unfold and uh, expose all of the inner secrets of not just ethics but how to become more ethical and to promote ethical behavior at your workplace and we do that while we are getting progressively more faced during the course of each episode in each episode we take seven shots every seven minutes and so at the beginning we are scholarly and by the end we are drunk yet still scholarly if you're interested in this podcast, which I know you are, anyone can listen to the podcast for free. It's out there. You can find it. But if you want CPE credit for it, NASBA certified CPE credit, 
It is a premium course on Earmark. So if you're already a subscriber to Earmark, it's going to be more than that. But listen, it's worth it because of two reasons. First off, you know your company, you know your firm's going to pay for it and not you. And second of all, it's worth it, damn it. So Terry Johnson bailed on Miniscribe because he was so disappointed with the uh, I, I don't know that's I'm assuming this is all this is all speculation. He was so disappointed that his baby uh, that was was failing in the market or not doing what he wanted. So he he bounced out. So there was a guy named Roger Gower. Uh, this guy had recently been hired as Miniscribe's president. He also became the CEO to take over for Terry Johnson. And Gower's tenure was very short. Miniscribe received about $20 million in investment from Hambrecht and Quist, which was an investment bank. You guys remember Hambrecht and Quist from the mid-1980s, of course. Of course. Uh, and, yeah. We're going to get and emails about that. We're gonna, they are. Somebody's going to be like, like I, actually, I worked, I worked very closely with the guys at H&Q. Thank you very right. much. <laughs> right, exactly. I still work for them. It's a very powerful company. You might know them now under their new name of Apple. I don't I don't know. I don't know. Um but yeah, but but uh Hambrecht and Quist was uh in some cases cited as a venture capital firm back in the nineteen mm eighties. -hmm. Uh and they had a successful track record of funding technology companies. Um and again we're talking in the nineteen eighties, so cutting edge technology like the wheel and the door. <laughs> And so, Hambrecht and Quist, uh, they they went ahead and they installed uh, one of their executives to replace Gower. So the guy that they installed, his name was Quentin Thomas Wiles, or his as he was known on the street, QT Wiles, and he was the new CEO of Miniscribe. And uh, Wiles, QT Wiles, he had this reputation of being a turnaround specialist. So he'd take these crappy companies and he'd make them amazing uh to the point where his nickname the people on the street if they didn't call him qt wiles they called him dr fix it so there, there's something very the, the name qt like somebody that would wa actually walk around with that name <laughs> would definitely right. also be the same type of person that'd be like yeah some people call me dr fix it i'm like is that right, right. qt <laughs> right so qt wiles dr fix it he had this whole thing going on, this turnaround machine, which uh, included a management team that was largely made up of all of these CPAs. But the, the main guy in this team that you need to know about is a fella named Patrick J. Schleibaum, and he was the CFO of Miniscribe. So Dr. Fixit, CEO, Schleibaum, CFO. Uh, now... Dr. Fixit, QT Wiles, had another reputation, too, beyond being a turnaround specialist. He was, like, super intimidating. High pressure, uh, that was what he was known for. His strategies in these turnaround situations, Caleb, was to make deep cost cuts, to restructure the firm into autonomous divisions, and to set very aggressive sales targets. Uh, so there was tons of pressure within the organization to hit the numbers because that had that was how a lot of the executives' compensation was based on whether or not they hit these targets, these aggressive targets that uh, Dr. Fixit put in place for his people. Yeah. I mean, you don't get a name like Dr. Fixit if you're just, you know, 
kind of pussyfooting around and like if you're not people fixing slip. stuff yeah you got to be fixing stuff i know so naturally this drove a very competitive environment as you would expect and mini scribe sales grew from just over 113 million around the time of its deal with ibm to over 600 million by 1988 that's a that's a huge that's that's over that's about five times is that right that's a big is growth my math right yeah, about yeah. 5x, right? It's, it's, it's about 5x. It's a little more. A little more than 5x. The company, uh, Miniscribe, they had operations in Colorado. That was their home base within the United States. But they also had operations in Singapore and in Hong Kong. And during this time, Miniscribe was recognized uh, throughout the financial sector for its growth and being one of the best managed companies in the hard disk drive business. In January 1987, Miniscribe personnel uh, were doing an examination of their inventory prior to a review by their auditors, who were Coopers and Librand, which is, of course, a, a predecessor firm of PWC. And that, you know, that, you know, Coopers was coming in to do, you know, the audit, uh, the year end audit for the 86 uh, financial statements. And during this, kind of routine examination of the inventory, the count came up a bit short between 2 million and 4 million bucks. And so just, so a, what the, just a pinch, just a little, just a little off. It's a few million, you know, two to 4 million. Yeah. So, but what yeah. does that mean? Right. It means that they actually have, I, we'll think about it. We'll try to explain this in practical terms. Right. But it, what okay. it means is that they actually have less inventory than what they say is on the books, right? So your books say one thing, and the guys go into the warehouse, and they count up all the stuff, and they're short compared to the books by two to four million, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now, this could be explained, I suppose, a number of different ways. It's accrual accounting, after all. Yeah. But the bottom line is that this shortfall suggested that the cost of the drives that they sold were more expensive than they thought. That the actual costs of the drives. Yes. 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 And to extend that one step further, it means the difference between the price they sold the drives for and what they cost, the difference was actually smaller than what they is on the books. So right. in other words, so the accounting and finance people out there know what I'm know what we're talking about. We're talking about gross margin, right? Right, because on the books you do this. There's you're like you're not actually tracking the cost of goods sold. You're saying right. what was the beginning inventory for the year minus the end of an ending inventory for the year. And there's there's more to the to the equation because you have to factor in what purchases yeah, and right all that yeah. all that sort of stuff. But basically, if you're saying you have a whole lot more value in your inventory, then you're saying we had a whole lot less value in our cost of goods sold. So we're we're deducting less from our top line. So if you deduct less, you have higher profits. That's so it's uh, right. Yeah. It's showing. And so if you have a shortfall, a lot more pro they're showing a lot more gross margin than in, than reality. Right. Exactly. Yep. So Greg, you are in this little team here, you day to day, you still, you still crunch numbers for a living. So let me ask you, in this, if, if you were in this situation, what can some, what could you do? 
Like if you run this business and you have this inventory and you go in and you count the inventory and you're like, uh, we're missing like two to 4 million bucks in inventory that yeah. we say is on the books. So what do you, what would you do? Right. But I'm like, I'm like a legit, like not fraudulent. Yes. Okay. I'm asking. Yes. Like if, 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 For, if you were, what would you do about this in a non, uh, what action would you take? That is as a good not guy, illegal as a, as good, a good guy. guy. Yes. Gotcha. Right. Okay. Right. As well, a guy who is obsessed with making the numbers. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. If it was me. So, so when I, if I think about that going, Oh my gosh, we just did an inventory and the numbers are way off of what, what they're saying there are in our financial statements. I, the, the immediate thing I would do is I do another inventory count. I'd think, okay, we must've, we must've done something wrong with our inventory right. count. Um, so we, because we, you're off by so much, so much. So it's just like, okay, right. we got, let's do it again. And then assuming that after the second inventory count, it came up short. The next thing I do is I'd review our assumptions because Typically, when you do an inventory count, you don't actually get to count every last item in inventory. You make you make right. certain assumptions. You 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 do samples, and then you project that yep. to be your entire you inventory. Extrapolate the results. Yeah, right. exactly. So so I'd review those assumptions to make sure that there weren't any, you know, that that nothing had changed in terms of our, the structure of our inventory, things like that. So I'd make sure my assumptions were correct. And then if even after I reviewed the assumption, go, no, those are still valid assumptions, valid ways to extend the actual count to what we're looking at, you know, to projecting what our total inventory is, then uh, I would have to go back and do a, a, a more thorough physical inventory and either actually count every last goddamn item inventory that we yeah. had or or short of that we you'd at least make it so that you counted more inventory because the the larger of a sample that you have the less that you're relying on your assumption or the more accurate your assumptions become with the larger sample that you have of actual counted inventory and, and then if i still was showing that i had this shortfall my next thing would be let's let's look at who's stealing hard drives out of the warehouse because that's right that's what i would assume is happening is that somebody's somebody's taking them out the back door right but then would you eventually like like to 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 f fix the hole like you would you would have to make some kind of correcting you'd have to correct hmm. the books somehow right oh oh yeah 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 because at that point i mean even if i'm assuming that they're going out the back door i would go oh well damn our inventory is is far less than what we recorded on our books. So, I mean, the right thing to do at that point is to go, we made a mistake, let's restate our financial yep. statements. And write down the To inventory. show our actual inventory, which is less, and our profits, our net income, which is also less because of that. Right. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. See, those are all, those seem to all be perfectly reasonable courses of action, Craig. Uh, Thank you. Do you want to know what the mini scribe people did? I absolutely want to know what the mini scribe people did. It's I, that's my whole purpose for living right now. Okay. Well, at first, some of the executives, uh, wanted to charge part of this shortfall in the inventory off to their inventory reserve account. And then they would, you know, book the rest of it to cost of goods sold, you know, okay. to, to true up the, the cost of goods sold. Gotcha. Right? And it an inventory reserve account is basically an account that you have that says, hey, some of our inventory is going to 
get damaged or get lost yep. or get or get stolen that won't be suitable for sale. Yeah, yeah. for one way or another right. inventory there's there's shrinkage of your inventory between what you actually create and what actually gets onto, you know, delivered to your customers. So that's what right. your reserves are. Right. So this idea was uh proposed to Schleibaum, the CFO, and he did not like that idea. Okay. <laughs> so instead they just made some numbers up. Right. And and Schleibaum's <laughs> gotta not like that because like we said like like we said earlier, their a lot of their compensation, their bonuses, whatever, was tied to them hitting these numbers. So obviously he's not gonna like the idea of of writing things down because that's gonna make it so they're not hitting those numbers. Yeah. So they made the numbers up. Yeah. And they inflated their inventory count. And by this time, of course, the auditors were, you know, they were doing their work. Yeah. Um, so after hours, a couple of these mini scribe guys broke into the auditor's files and oh. altered the counts to match their bogus numbers. <laughs> nice. Which again is so crazy because we're talking 1980s because yeah. in the 2020s, you say breaking into files and everybody yeah, thinks that- of something like a hacker at a, at a keyboard. <laughs> Like going, right. at, you know, like like a Mister Robot, uh, you know, going. Yeah. I know, I know them well enough to know that their first pet's name was probably Scruffy, so, you know, something right. like that. This was like right. actual, like a file cabinet with a little lock on it, with a little push. I had a dog. Lock. I had a dog named Scruffy growing up. Did you? For I real? Did. Nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, yeah. The, I know all these things. That's why I pilfer money out of your bank account. Yeah, Regularly. but you're right. Like they probably they they probably went in there and they had these little Allen wrenches and they like went yeah. into the briefcase and like and pop, yeah, it popped yeah. open and they must have like shit right. their pants. They would have been like, oh my god, we opened it. It and worked, they, and right. then they it worked, and then they changed right. the numbers. It right. Just, well, it just or, seems or you so got ridiculous. Or well, here's the thing. This is more likely to me. You've got this group of people that can build a hard drive on a pool table. <laughs> They're right. handy guys. So the guy going, I can totally pop that file cabinet open. And that's, uh, I think. I mean, I don't mean to correct you, but the guys building the hard drive on the pool table were not the guys breaking into the auditor's files. Okay. Well, in my mind, it's the guys. You're right. It's the, it's the accountants. Okay. Sorry good to point. burst your bubble. No, no, good. Good. No, again, that's, that's our dynamic here where I have these very romantic ideas of this work and you're like, no. It was different. You're dumb. I get it. Uh, so they tweaked their books a little more and uh, their little inventory shortfall problem was no more. Yeah. And these these numbers were part of the 1986 financial statements package that was filed with the SEC and disseminated to investors. Making them happy. and every And the world was right again. Yeah. So then in July of 1987, one of QT Wiles, Dr. Fixit, I think that's how we're going to just say this throughout now. Yeah. Yeah. One of his team expressed concern to him about Miniscribe's Far East operations. So QT, Dr. Fixit, went out to Singapore and Hong Kong to see what's what. And what he found was not good. In our research, it was described as, quote, a complete loss of inventory control in Miniscribe's Singapore facility.
This episode of Oh My Fraud is sponsored by SoftLedger. SoftLedger is a real-time cloud accounting software platform that enables accountants, CFOs, and developers to manage multiple entities, integrate with other systems, and close the books faster. SoftLedger has everything you would expect from a cloud accounting app like an adaptable GL, bank feed data, automated AP and AR, financial reporting, and cash flow tools. But SoftLedger is more advanced than other accounting packages on the market as it can handle multi-currency, multiple businesses, properties, investments, sub-ledgers, and SoftLedger is the first full-featured accounting system that supports crypto multi-wallet asset management with seamless integrations to crypto exchanges, giving you real-time transactional crypto accounting and reporting. SoftLedger is fully programmable via their API. This allows your team of developers to create your own accounting functionality or easily connect SoftLedger to other software you may be using. To learn more about using SoftLedger and to get 25% off your first three months when you mention the Oh My Fraud podcast, head over to ohmyfraud.promo slash SoftLedger. That's ohmyfraud.promo forward slash S-O-F-T-L-E-D-G-E-R. So with the complete loss of inventory control in the Far East uh, divisions of Miniscribe, Dr. Fixit removed Schleibaum from his role as CFO and he put in a new guy named William P. Larea as the acting CFO. And due to this mess, this huge inventory mess, uh, Dr. Fixit ordered an analysis of the inventory and uh, what was discovered was that there was a brace for it, $15 million shortfall in inventory, uh, the largest being at Miniscribe's Colorado facility. So after them going, oh, inventory in the Far East is in disarray, then they go, well, we're doing it okay in Colorado. No, absolutely not. It was a mess. And so Dr. Fixit met with his team in the fall of 1987, all they were trying to do was figure out what to do with this inventory situation. And one of his right-hand men, one of his lieutenants, presented him with a report that had a whole bunch of different ideas for how to fix the inventory problem. But none of those ideas were, let's do the right thing and just tell the public that our inventory numbers were wrong. Because if they just came clean and told the public, what was really happening that would have a huge impact on the company's profits. And obviously that would have a huge impact on the C-suites, uh, their compensation. So what Wiles decided to do is he told his team to continue covering up the shortfall. And then he also destroyed the report that this guy had. So he was basically like, I love your great ideas of doing bad things with our numbers of committing fraud. So let's do that and let's burn all of the evidence that we met today and decided to do this. So then, just a few weeks later, Dr. Fixit and his team, they met again and his acting CFO, Larea, suggested that it, he was like, listen guys, 
what we really need to do is we really just need to come clean and we need to write off our inventory inaccuracies uh, and just make the books right again. Miniscribe stock price at this point, when Larea suggests this, Miniscribe stock price was already just being beat up because of this huge drop in the overall market. Because another thing that happened in late 1987 was Black Monday, October 19th, 1987, where everybody's stock price was just in the toilet. So there wasn't much more for them to lose. So the idea was let's write off this shortfall right now while we can because everybody's in the toilet and no one will really realize that we're even more in the toilet than we would have been otherwise. Seems like a solid idea, doesn't it? Decent idea. I think it's a great idea. Bury the bad news. Bury the bad news and the broader bad news. It's almost like Black Monday could have been the exact thing that they needed that they were praying for to be able to get out of this shitty situation. But Dr. Fixit refused. He said, hell no, we're not doing that. So in November 1987, Dr. Fixit and his team reconvened once again, and it was at this meeting where Dr. Fixit suggested that they write off the inventory shortfall, not all at once, but over six quarters, so over 18 months, and that they would start doing it the first quarter of 1988. And Dr. Fixit insisted that everyone get on board with his brilliant plan. So, Uh, Greg. Yeah. Maybe people know, maybe they don't, but maybe you can explain to me what's wrong with this idea. They're still going to write it off. He's just going to do it over the course of 18 months. Tell me why that's not, tell me that why that's wrong. Well, the whole thing's wrong because the numbers are inaccurate. So, uh, and so there's, and, and is there a is there a principle? There's an accounting principle that kind of like underscores all this, yeah, well, right? Well, yeah. The ma- well, there's two. There's the main principle of report the right fucking numbers. Uh, that's the main <laughs> main principle. Okay. That comes to my mind, but also there's the. I mean, I think you're alluding to the matching principle that says yes. that when you the 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 same period that you sell the the inventory that's when you have to re- report it as cost of goods right. sold so they're they're absolutely you know they've been violating the matching principle from the first time they noticed that their inventory was off right so for just in case there's and i know we have some non-accountants listening out there so i'm just this is why somebody might be thinking well that sounds okay i mean they maybe should have done it right away but now they're trying to do the right thing but they're really he's trying to do the right thing in the very in a very wrong way right and it's not even really the right thing right because no. like the right thing would just to be to to write the whole thing off all at once and just like start all over yeah and and the hope i believe and, and this is me kind of reading into the the motivations of the mini scribe team I've got to assume that the hopes are, hey, we're going to have our next six quarters are looking very, uh, uh, we're we're very optimistic about the results Mm -hmm. that we should be getting in the next uh, six quarters. So if we write off this inventory shortfall shortly over those next six quarters, it'll probably probably be buried and no one will notice it anyways, and we'll be back to square one. And at that, you know, 
So instead of following the matching principle, they're following the no harm, no foul <laughs> principle, which is not, that's not something they teach in accounting school. Right. So, but there was still a problem, huh, Greg? There was still a problem, and that problem was Miniscribe's 1987 audit and how they were going to cover up uh, their inventory problem to Coopers and Librand, who their whole job was to make sure that the numbers reported in the financial statements reflected the reality of their company, and the reality of their company was not good. So in December of 1987, Wiles and his team came up with their plan for the Who's for the Wiles? Dr. Fix-It. Oh, right. Dr. Fix-It. Dr. Fix-It. So they came up with a plan. Miniscribe rented a huge empty warehouse in Boulder, Colorado. And on December 18th, 1987, several of Wiles' Dr. Fix-It, several of his team... They gathered at the warehouse. Wiles, Dr. Fix-It wasn't there. Dr. Fix-It okay. wasn't there. Uh-huh. And this team spent that day, one week before Christmas, packing 26,000 bricks they had purchased from the Colorado Brick Company into boxes. They loaded those onto pallets. They shrink-wrapped those pallets and loaded them onto trucks. Why bricks, you ask? Because the weight of each brick pallet was basically the weight of a pallet of disk drives at that time. That means disk drives are heavy as hell. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. bricks aren't as heavy as you think, right? Like when you pick up a single brick, okay, it's like, oh, that's a brick? It's lighter yeah. than you gotcha. think, right? Yeah, yeah. But anyway, point. so then they moved these trucks up to Larimer County, which is you know north and east of Boulder. And they booked these bricks as in-transit inventory worth approximately $4 million. So, so they, they, they basically said, hey, here's a bunch of boxes of disk drives. Here, lift it. It feels like a box of disk drives, right? Yep. And then yep. they're like, but I mean, so it feels right. It's labeled right, and it's shrink wrapped. So you don't want to have to cut through the shrink yeah, wrap. Yeah, you don't want. So it's, you can't unwrap these. I mean, these. it's just it's it's distra. It's, it's hard. To, it's hard drives. Don't worry about it. Yep. Nice. Nice. <laughs> Two of Miniscribe's buyers of disk drives agreed to quote unquote refuse the shipment. Miniscribe then reversed the sales and added the inventory back. Yeah. The team also employed other means of plugging this inventory hole, including recording a shipment of non-existent inventory to its Far East operations, packing scrap as inventory, which is double like, counting. Yeah, it's basically that's basically bricks again. Just the bricks are <laughs> shitty hard drives. Uh, yes, that's exactly pa- right. Yeah, yes, packing right. scrap. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Uh, double counting inventory. Awesome. And not booking any accounts payable upon receipt of some of the materials. Okay. And so this kind of maze of accounting maneuvers would make it pretty hard, I think, for auditors to detect anything suspicious. Because like they'd just be, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, Greg, but like it feels like with all these different things going on, the auditors will probably just at some point be like, well, 
it's real complicated and uh within uh our immateriality threshold or whatever you know and they they kind of use the knowledge of like how auditors work to kind of like get them to chase their tails a little bit and just kind of like throw up their hands probably at one point yeah but it's and and again they probably you know the auditors would probably just make notes of all these things and say well this is a high-risk area but we feel all right because we saw the shrink wrap pilots right right. and they were whatever they were diversifying their fraud portfolio is what they were doing exactly so and so as a result miniscribe had inflated its profits between 15 million and 22 million bucks wow and QT Wiles, Dr. Fixit, his announcement to stockholders in Miniscribe's 1987 annual report stated, quote, we achieved the best results in the company's history and now have 10 consecutive quarters of increased revenue and earnings. 1987 was a great year and the outlook for 1988 looks even better. What a dick. With a straight face. This episode of Oh My Fraud is sponsored by Patriot. Patriot software creates accounting and payroll software that radically simplifies the day-to-day complexities that American businesses and their accountants face. Patriot is seamlessly integrated under one login, easy to use and affordable. And they rank number one for ease of use, customer support, features, and value for the money by users. Patriot's accounting software is a cloud-based, full-featured accounting general ledger that gives your clients the simplicity they need, but the power you require. Patriot has patented dual-ledger accounting, so you can quickly switch between cash basis, modified cash basis, or accrual accounting, and a chart of accounts that can have unlimited sub-accounts and nest up to eight accounts deep. Patriot's payroll software lets you run payroll in three easy steps, offers free two-day direct deposit, and their full-service payroll offers a tax filing guarantee. Optional payroll add-ons include Patriot's HR software to maintain paperless employee files, manage company documents, and generate required compliance reports. And Patriot's time and attendance offers an employee portal for manual hour entry or time punches, custom overtime rules, and a seamless integration to Patriot payroll. Accounting professionals can partner with Patriot and receive discounted pricing that increases as you add more clients. Support located in the USA, free co-branding, and free accounting and payroll for your firm. Join thousands of accounting professionals who trust Patriot with their clients' accounting and payroll and get a 30-day free trial. Head on over to ohmyfraud.promo slash Patriot. That's ohmyfraud.promo forward slash P-A-T-R-I-O-T. So as planned, Miniscribe began writing off their inventory shortfall uh, starting in 1988, according to Dr. Fixit's plan, seven million over the first three quarters. Dr. Fixit planned to write off three million in the fourth quarter, and then again in the first two quarters of 1989. But due to market conditions, he wasn't able to write off as much as he wanted because, like we said, I think that validates my assumption that he was going. He probably really did think. 1988 was going to be a bang up year. And so was 1989. 
it wasn't as bang up as he wanted, so he couldn't write off as much as he had intended. And so, yeah, yeah. one thing if you if you look into the research, a lot of what was going on at that time, like disc drives, you know, be, remember this story started in 1980, right? Yeah. So eight years on, the the market is maturing a lot, and it's starting to soften a bit. And so, like, yeah, things are. I don't know, things are not great. Like, you know, they're obviously, you know, computers are still being made and sold and they still need hard drives, but it, it, you know, it's, it's just gotten to the period where there's not this rapid, you know, growth anymore. Yeah. That, which, which makes sense. Makes, uh, makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And so at the end of uh, 1988, they had written off uh, 7.6 million instead of the 10 million that they had planned to write off at that point. Like you said, hard disk drive uh, market was in a slump at this time. And because of that, uh, many scribes problems started to compound. For instance, uh, one of its lenders, the Bank of America, refused to give the company an extension on its line of credit, which was a $35 million line of credit, and it was maxed out. So. Bank of America is like, oh, we're good. You got to pay that that line of credit back. So because of that, Dr. Fixit went to Standard Charter for money. You know, Standard Chartered, another bank that doesn't exist now, I don't think, because I've never heard it's of in the, Standard it's a UK, Chartered. It, it's a UK bank. Oh, oh it's a, it's and a big U, point, It's a big U. Yeah, it's a big UK bank. And now that you say that, Standard Charter sounds so British to me. That no, Standard like, Chartered. And it's standard chartered. And yes, it's very British. Yeah, standard chartered. And in July of 1988, standard chartered, they they uh, were good with it. And they extended Miniscribe $90 million in a line of credit uh, based on its financial statements, which were bullshit. And Miniscribe <laughs> used... 60 million of the 90 million of that line of credit just as working capital. So they were mm. using uh, two thirds of, of this gigantic line of credit just to pay the bills. Based just, just to keep the, the lights pay, on. Yeah. <laughs> just to keep the lights on, which that's not what you yeah. do with a loan, no. but that's what they were doing with a loan. Even a line of credit, you're not supposed to do it just to pay the bills. So standard charter also satisfied Miniscribe's outstanding debt to the Bank of America in September of 1988. But when Dr. Fixit asked Standard Chartered for even more credit later in the fall and in early 1989, Standard Chartered said, uh, hell no, but like they in a British enough. way. So they're like, no, thanks, chap. I don't. <laughs> so then in December of 1988, Dr. Fixit, it seems like he finally just had enough of his own BS and had a bit of a change of heart because he went to one of the board members of Miniscribe, a guy that he had informed. The, so Dr. Fixit had informed this board member about the inventory problem that Miniscribe had and was trying to deal with. And Dr. Fixit was like, dude, Miniscribe just needs to take a $40 million hit in the fourth quarter of 1988. Huge hit to yeah. land in a single quarter. Huge. Yeah. And in the research, I, if I may, I can add some color. Here yes, please. Like. So the so the person he was telling back was this the Hembrecht of the Hembrecht and Quist, the bank. 
the it yeah. was it was he was the chairman and he knew about this problem and you know by this time as you imagine like as we pointed out just a minute ago if they're using 60 million bucks that 90 million line of credit for working capital like that means like things are going bad like they're basically just like trying to keep up paying vendors and stuff and like remember they're manufacturing something right so like the supply chain is probably really close to like breaking down and shit and so it's probably right. getting real hairy right about now. And that's probably, yeah, yeah. that's my hunch. I'm speculating a little bit here, but there's my hunch is that Dr. Fix it was just like, okay, this is how we fix it now. <laughs> you know? <laughs> right. And right. well, yeah, like he, he finally was like, and, and, and this is, again, this is me reading into it and a bit of speculation, but I think that this is the point where he was like with, with all frauds where you go, okay, this is unsustainable. And he was, and his, his, uh, solution was, okay, since it's unsustainable, we just need to, we just need to call it and take our lumps and deal with that. But then we have this weird kind of uh, power shift because the, ch the chairman of the board at that mm -hmm. point says, oh no, we're not taking a $40 million loss in one quarter. And so instead they still did. Uh, report a loss, but it was 14 million rather than 40 million. But the rest of the board, it was just this one board member. The who was it? The Heim Heimlich? What was his name? It was Hem Hembrecht, right? And so here's the thing. Here's the thing about that. The reason he did not want to do the 40 million write-off in that whole one quarter is because, as you as, as you just said, none of the the rest of the board didn't know about this. Right. And his fear yeah. was that yeah. if they reported the entire loss, if they did the entire write down in that quarter, he was afraid that the whole board would have resigned. And then you've got a, a okay. fucking that's a disaster. Right. I mean, we've still got a pretty bad mess, but he his thought was like it was going to become catastrophic, you know, right. If, if they were, were to reported that because then you think about the board, right? Think of the board and be like, hey, we're board members and we're smart business people and we're in charge of, we're the ones that are actually in charge. And then it's yeah. like, oh, by the way, this quarter we had a $40 million loss. And the board's like, this is the first I've heard of this. And right. so everybody looks real stupid. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah and so totally. they're like, well, I, I won't stand here and be embarrassed. Right. I'll just quit. Right. <laughs> Which then, I mean, you can imagine yeah. that that's kind of, you know, what's happening in his imagination, right? Which I'll tell you, that's a, that's a legit reason for people to aid and abet fraudsters is because they're embarrassed that that fraudster was able to perpetrate a fraud on their watch. Uh, it's a, it's right. a weird dynamic and I've seen it firsthand before and it's bizarre, but it's very, it's very true. So with, uh, Heimlich not Hamburg. wanting the rest of the board to resign. He did the $14 million loss instead of the $40 million loss. But instead in early 1989, Dr. Fix it resigned. He was like, Hey, uh, this is this, this is a sinking ship. I can't do anything. So, uh, I'm just gonna walk away from this, from this mess that this, this giant stinking pile of crap that I created. So in February, 1989, uh, Dr. Fix it, bounced out and his successor a fella named richard reifenberg uh he obviously came in and he learned about the inventory problem so he ordered a comprehensive analysis of what happened and reifenberg 
found out that this was a gigantic mess. He he find out, he, he learned as the new guy the actual size and scope of the inventory problem, and so he ordered an independent investigation into the inventory shenanigans. And as a result of that, in April of 1989, Miniscribe issued a press release that informed the public that their past financial statements should not be relied upon. And in December of 1989, the company released corrected financial statements for 1986, 1987, 1988, and the first half of 1989. Basically, the yeah, a huge chunk of their history was all rewritten. And in early 1990, Miniscribe filed for bankruptcy and its stock was delisted from the stock exchanges. So shortly after the bankruptcy, Miniscribe's assets were purchased by Maxter, a competitor, for $46 million. Uh, Maxter went on later to become acquired by Seagate. Uh, but but yeah, they, they assumed the assets. They did not, of course, assume the liabilities. Um, right. That independent investigation ordered by Richard Reifen, uh, Reifenberg, uh, they released a report in September of 1989 that alleged that Miniscribe's executives had perpetrated a massive fraud what and uh, yes yes can you believe it and uh, one of the one of the good quotes uh, from from the reporting at the time was this fraud this fraud was all the more alarming in that it required the active participation of many company personnel and was apparently common knowledge among a great many other employees end of quote of course a flurry of litigation ensued with a finding against Hambrecht and Quist and Coopers and Librand in February of 1992 uh, for 550 million. However, that was quickly overturned, and the reporting around that there wasn't a ton of reporting around it, so it wasn't clear as to why the re- it was uh, overturned so quickly. But then they settled out of court, and uh, a grand jury indicted QT Wiles, Doctor Fist, uh, Doctor Fixit, and Patrick Schleibaum. Uh, they were both indicted. They were indicted separately, but they were both indicted in March 1993. Schleibaum was convicted in June of 1994 and sentenced to two years in prison. And Dr. Fixit was convicted of fraud and other in- insider trading in August of 1994 and later sentenced to three years. So, Greg, uh, did we learn anything? Yeah, I learned uh, several things, one of which was, once again, uh, learning that inventory is the refuge of perpetrators of financial statement fraud. I wouldn't say that inventory is easy to manipulate, but if you are motivated enough, you definitely can manipulate inventory. And yeah. uh, because auditors aren't getting, you know, like we said, an inventory audit, they're not counting every last single no. item of inventory. Right. They're, and they're they're not going to open every box. They're definitely not going to open every shrink wrap box. And so the shrink wrap box with bricks, very creative. These guys win an award yeah. for creativity. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, bri- bricks in a shrink wrap box, uh, that's going to go a long way. Uh, and it's, it's creative and it took a lot of work, but it got the job done for what they they needed to do. I also learned uh, that that and and this is 
this has been very interesting uh, because we see it specifically in financial statement fraud is that hordes of normal good people just mm -hmm. by being normal people end up being accomplices in financial statement fraud. So yep. like, and I, and I know that some of the, some of the executives were involved in the, the bricks and the boxes, but when you, when you think there had to have been other people involved in that as well. Uh, yep. so, so like when, wittingly or unwittingly, right? Well, like well but we but, saw it in the crazy Eddie story too. Right. When we were talking to Gary about that is like, yeah, like you say, good people just get caught up in these yeah. things and it's like, what the fuck is going on? And but, it's like, okay. but I would, I would almost say that it's not even wittingly and unwittingly almost becomes a non-issue because mm. what really is at stake is your boss comes to you and they say, Hey, here's what we're doing today. We're putting bricks and boxes <laughs> that are labeled hard yeah. drives. We're, sh we're, we're putting some shrink wrap, wrap around and them. there's a very good reason. Yeah. For we're this. putting the truck and we're driving them to Fort Collins and, and, and so it, you're just an employee and you go, okay, so I guess today we're putting bricks in boxes, we're shrink wrapping them and we're driving them. You, you just do, if you're a good employee, you do what they ask you to do. And you, you might think to yourself, and this is where, you know, complicit or not complicit comes in. Cause you, you might, you know, at best you're going to go, well, this is a weird thing for them to want me to do. And maybe it's almost like this seems kind of fishy, but. You also, it's easy to shrug off like response. You can, you can easily defend your actions. Go, I was just telling me what my boss told me to do and I didn't want to get in trouble. And then mm -hmm. you're off the hook. So you go, okay, it seems, this seems weird. This maybe seems fishy, but it makes my boss happy and I'm getting paid. So let's shrink wrap some bricks, bitches. <laughs> and that's, that's how it goes. So it's just, yeah. it's weird to me. Like I said, that, that because usually, one of the main tenets of like internal controls is that it, it's harder to commit a fraud with more people. So part of internal controls uh, makes it so that you would have to have collusion amongst multiple parties to commit the fraud. Mm -hmm. But in some of this financial statement fraud stuff, collusion is even kind of out the door. It's just sort of like, we're just doing what we're told to be doing and you know we're not you know maybe even part of the co corporate culture is don't ask questions it's none of your business just do your goddamn right. job so it's it's weird how how many people can be have their fingers in this fraud like i said j even though there's not really that that aspect of scienter that uh that yep. we, I, I don't think we've talked about like the intent to defraud is right. not there with all of these people, but they're obviously aiding and abetting it just by doing what they're told to be to to do. Very interesting uh, yep. component of these financial statement frauds specifically. And then the last thing, I, I don't know if this is really something I learned, but it, it's maybe more under the the umbrella of just some speculation. But one of the one of the themes that we see in financial statement fraud, and really, it's kind of a theme just in fraud in general. Is is this idea that they're going to do? They're going to commit this fraud just to help them get through a, a a rough patch. It's like we had we had a bad year, you know. And and even in this case, because correct me if I'm wrong, Caleb, but the shortfall in inventory was just it it, it was just a mistake at the beginning. Right. 
there wasn't yeah. it wasn't intentional to say hey let's understate our, or let's overstate our inventory right i mean i didn't see anything i didn't see anything that suggested that there was you know chicanery going on yeah. with that initial shortfall right yeah, like they were just, doing a routine they were doing a routine examination of inventory and like I say it's like whoa this is way off right and you're just like how does that happen well any number of ways, right? Sure. Like businesses are businesses are complicated, but what you do from there, yeah, is is the important thing, exactly. right? Exactly. Like, well, well, do we suck it up and like take the hit, or do we uh, do we double down and right. just be like, well, let's just uh, let's figure this out. Yeah. Well, and that's and that's the thing, and so so kind of the the justification. That I and this is the speculation part. The justification that I'm speculating that they have is okay. Like specifically in the mini scribe case, they go somebody we don't know who, and maybe it was a whole bunch of people just totally fucked up our inventory. So now we're dealing with the reality of these totally fucked up inventory numbers. So they say, what do we do? And they go, you know what? Let's just fake it until we make it. Let's, yeah, we'll just, we'll just say the numbers are right and we're going to make it up because we're a solid company. Our business model is great. Our product's great. Yeah. We'll have great quarters then. So, what, and this is, this is the theme that we see, not just is that that's kind of a, a, a general, you know, mindset of a lot of fraudsters getting into it, but then that compounded with the fact that things never really bounce back. They don't, they don't get right. the turnaround that they were expecting or hoping for. So then they have to double down on this fraud that they thought was just going to be a one-time thing, a one-quarter thing, a one-period thing, and then get over it. And so, you know, with with uh, Miniscribe, they hatched a plan even to, to try to right their wrongs, but they couldn't do it because the market never helped them to yeah. right those wrongs. But, and again, back to the speculation side, I, there's a lot of me that's got to assume that there have been some companies that have dabbled in some pretty hardcore fraud, but sure. the market did bounce back and it did help them out. And they were able to get back on track and go, oh, phew, our little lie was just a little lie and it's buried in, in history and no one is never going to come to light. Do you, right. what do you think? Do you think that that's, that that happens? Do you think that that kind of, oh, I mean, no harm, no sure. foul? Fraud is yeah, exists. Sure. Oh my god! It probably it, it's going on probably right this minute. Okay. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like we think about like channel stuffing, right? Like that's mm-hmm. one of those things. And for folks that don't know, like channel stuffing, and keep me honest, Greg, because I don't I don't do the accounting anymore. But channel stuffing is one of those things where they try to like basically stuff the period with additional sales. Yeah. Right. So that they can make a number. Yeah. But they're they're recognizing the sales improperly yeah. when they should be recognized in a future period where it doesn't help them make their numbers in the current period. Yeah. Right. Yep. And so a lot of times you can just imagine like a company just channel stuffing and then they're like, and then like next quarter comes around. It's like, well, that's in the past. And they just reverse it all out or whatever. Yeah. And it's just like, and like right. you say, the market comes back or they have a good month or whatever. Right. And it's like, Hey, everything's good. And they just move on. I mean, it's right. gotta happen all the time. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. Like, I mean, when you, and you just think of like, in like this situation where they're talking about high pressure sales environments, or you have, you have just high pressure management structure where it's all about making the numbers. Like it's, I mean, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. So I can, and I can see that because yeah, a lot of times, 
like when the classic channel stuffing scenario is where you go to a, 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 one of your customers that you have a very close, a long-term relationship with. Right. And they say, Hey, is it okay if do we do a bulk order? If we or bill whatever. you, like, we know that you're going to buy or bill you know, early, this many right. units next year. We're just going to bill it for you in on December 31st so yeah. that we can, so we can book it in this last year. You don't have to pay for it until right. when you normally would. And then, you, and then that person ends up selling twice as much of your stuff as they thought they were that year. Then you're, you're, yeah, that's, that's kind of the no harm, no foul fraud. But it's still fraud and it's still wrong, and you're not yep. supposed to do it because there's plenty of time. More, li- I'm going to say more likely than not, you're not going to dig yourself out the way that you think you're going to dig yourself out. Right, and I guess as far as learnings learnings go, I'm I'm I kind of think about some of the stuff we've talked about in terms of uh, like behavioral economics or whatever. Uh-huh. Um, just the psychology of like, you know, Doctor Fix It. He thought he had the perfect plan. Yeah. Right. He thought that he was going to be able to write this off over the course of six quarters. And but but you know what? That's the planning fallacy. Right. Like you 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 underestimate the chances of things going wrong. Right. And in this case, everything went wrong. And so he couldn't do what he wanted to do. So his plan wouldn't work. And like that's a pretty oversimplified way of thinking about it, maybe. But it's it's essentially that that's, you know, the, the psychology of just assuming that everything will go according to plan yeah. when we all know through just basically our own experiences in life in all kinds of different ways. Most of the time, nothing goes to plan. <laughs> right. 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 So and, and like that's the risk. Right. Is like is, is you is, like you're talking about how you know, we're going through a tough time. We'll make it up the next quarter, the next year or whatever. Everything has to go perfectly right. for that exactly. in order to work. Exactly. And more yeah. often than not. Things don't go perfectly. It, it, things don't go as planned. Yeah. Exactly. Right. And I guess the other thing that for me, I think, and this is an easy one, you know, so if you're, if you're taking the CPE quiz, tone at the top, right? Like this guy, yeah. Wiles had a reputation, had, you know, he was a fixer. He was a hard charging management style, like a lot of pressure on the numbers, just creates, just creates the, the perfect environment yeah. uh, for, for corruption and fraud. And like, it's just, I don't know, it's as old as the crucifixion, as they like to say, you know, just that's, do they like to say maybe, that? I don't know. Maybe it's not that old, but like, but that kind of environment. When you have those ingredients, it's as, like, it's as it, old as the Commodore 64, at least. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. So in any case. Yeah. And that's true. And, and auditors actually are supposed to take that into account. If, if uh, executive compensation is based on the financial statements, that's a huge red flag for risk that those financial statements are misstated. And, you know, and they're, when they're, when they're in their mandatory meeting to brainstorm how and why fraud might occur in a company. If executive compensation is based on financial statement results, that has to come up as something that's like, okay, we got to make sure that this, but, but again, that that's part of the brainstorming. But then if they go, okay, so what do we do? Check the inventory like we always do. Yeah, let's do that. So (laughs) it doesn't, it doesn't help a whole lot just to know that that's the case. Well, that's it for this episode. And remember, Uh, never take out a five and a quarter inch floppy disk out of the disk drive when that little light is green. And also remember, never trust anyone who calls themselves Dr. Fix-It. If you want to drop us a line, send us an email at ohmyfraud at earmarkcpe.com. And Caleb, 
Uh, if people want to reach out to you, where can they find you out there in the internet? I'm on Twitter at CNewquist, and my LinkedIn is backslash Caleb Newquist. Greg, where are you on the internet? Uh, same thing. Twitter, I'm at Greg Kite, uh, and LinkedIn, backslash Greg Kite. Oh My Fraud is written by Greg Kite and myself. Our producer is Zach Frank. If you like the show, leave us a review or share it with a friend. Rating the show and leaving reviews help other people find it. So do that. Leave a review. Write something. Write something nice. Five stars. Or not nice. We prefer the nice thing. Yeah. Five stars. Also, to be sure to subscribe on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And for the accountants out there, if you listen to the podcast on Earmark, you can earn free CPE. Nice. Better than a brick. (laughs) Better than a box full of bricks in shrink wrap. (laughs) Join us next time for more avarice, swindlers, and scams from stories that will make you say, Oh, "Oh, my my fraud. fraud.